Well, good morning. It's a joy to just be able to sing praises together as we were reminded this morning from both our scripture reading and the uh, somewhat obvious fact that it is Palm Sunday. It is just wonderful to come together as a body and to sing the Lord's praises together. And thank you all for joining together and making it such a joyful and worshipful time together. Yesterday I was asked uh, just a question about what does Hosanna mean? And I actually had to pause and, and, and double check because when I, when I answered it, on the one hand, it has a literal meaning. It means save me. It's, that, it's actually save me, please. That gnaw at the end is it's an entreaty. It's a, it's a begging. It's a to please save me. However, over time, as that term began to be used more and more within Jewish worship settings, as they would sing praises to the Lord, the, the term began to take on more of a of a idea of rejoicing and praise, similar to hallelujah, but with a little more specific emphasis on recognizing and looking to the fact that not only am I asking the Lord to save, but He has already promised His salvation. He has promised to save. So as they sang Hosanna to the King as He walked in, as they sang Hosanna in the highest, they were recognizing the truth that God saves. And that's the Lord that we worship this morning. We come together to worship. Praising the Lord and giving thanks to Him really should be second nature for believers. To praise Him at all times. To give praise because of the great work that He has done. And when prayer is answered, when blessings seem to flow, and things appear to be going according to at least our plans, praising comes easy, doesn't it? Praising the Lord giving thanks of saying Hosanna, it's very easy to do. But we would be deceiving ourselves if we said it was just as easy or just as natural in times of difficulty or adversity. Recognizing the reality of this struggle, Job says to his wife in Job 2.10, and responding to her, he says, Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? That's really a profound question. It's an important question. It's one that we're going to consider this morning. As this question I want us to ask ourselves this Palm Sunday is, we read of the crowds, as we've already read of the crowds, and the people singing praises to God, shouting, Hosanna. As they would lay their coats, as they laid the palm branches upon the ground, as Jesus rode to Jerusalem that day. We also know that before the week was out, as we'll celebrate next Sunday, their cries of Hosanna and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, it turned into cries of what? Crucify him. Crucify him. Why the fickle response? And how do we as believers, as those who are called to praise the Lord, how do we avoid a capricious nature, especially when it comes to praising the Lord, when it becomes difficult to praise the Lord, when the events of life seem to sway us, when we go from the highs to the lows? How do we avoid that fickle response. Before we answer that, we need to really clarify even further maybe Job's question. You see, there's an unstated assumption in Job's question. It's do we accept adversity, not just accept it, but do we accept it with the same eagerness, the same thankfulness, and the recognition that God's sovereign love and care is involved in this, just as it is in those things that we would classify as good. 
In other words, do you praise the Lord? Do you give thanks to the Lord? Not just in the adversity and time of testing, but for the adversity and the time of testing. Obviously, we want to answer yes, right? Because we know that's the right answer. That's the, tech, that's the scriptural answer. That's the Sunday school. If I'm going to raise my hand and give the answer, that's what it is. Yes, of course. But I don't want you to answer it with a simple yes or no. Instead, I want you to answer it by evaluating your answers to the following questions. What is the first thing that enters your mind when things don't go your way? When you last faced difficulty, when you last faced a trial or adversity, the last time someone slandered you, how did you respond? Maybe there's two responses, one that was in your mind and the other that came out of your mouth. In the midst of trials and difficulties, have you consistently responded in grateful praise, accepting the adversity from God? Or was there grumbling or murmuring or asking the proverbial, why me? Your answer to those questions provide you with the answer to whether you really can affirm with Job, yes, I praise the Lord for the adversity that God brings into my life, not just in the midst of, but for the adversity. And the reason we need to ask these questions is because there exists a vast difference between knowing something and believing something. And until we really believe it, we will not consistently act upon it. We know what the right thing to do is, but why don't we act on it? Short answer is we don't believe it at least not as firmly as we should. And so we want this morning our faith to grow in this area, our belief to grow in this area, because belief affects behavior. It's also why we can ask these questions about our behavior, because behavior exposes your true belief. The crowds knew Jesus. They had listened to him. They knew what he preached concerning the kingdom of God. They knew he could work miracles. They knew all of these things. But that did not save them. Their knowledge did not save them. Satan and his demons had and have greater knowledge of Scripture than any of us in this room will ever have. And yet they sin and continue to sin in their rebellion against God. Knowledge alone does not equal and does not equate with belief. So we ask these questions about our behavior to see what we really believe with regard to God's loving kindness and his sovereignty in the midst of adversity, knowing that we're to be giving Him praise at all times, but wanting to know how do I respond with praise at all times? Because this is not an easy world to live in. We've been lifting up in prayer brothers and sisters and those affected by what's going on in Ukraine. This is a hard place to live because of sin and the curse and the fall. So how do we praise God in the midst of that difficulty at all times? I'll be the first to tell you that my answer to those questions I asked have not always revealed a heart that accepts the adversity the way it should, that it comes from God, and have not always turned it into praise. But I also don't think I'm alone in that realization. I know there are some sitting here now who are undergoing trials and difficulties, and I know there are times that you struggle to praise the Lord. So this morning, I want to examine our belief and provide us with the means and the motivation for praising the Lord so that we can sing and say Hosanna in both seasons of blessing and seasons of adversity. Pray with me. Father, we do come before you. And Father, we do want to say Hosanna.
Hosanna in the highest. We praise you. We recognize the great salvation that has been offered to us, that has been done in history. We recognize and we praise you for the salvation that you have promised and your saving works that are yet to be done. We thank you for your promises, which your word unfolds for us. We thank you for the great privilege and gift we have to come together this morning to open up your word, to study it together, to delight in it together, to learn from it together. Father, may the truths that we see, Father, would they lead to a deepening of our belief, that our faith would grow, that we would minister to one another in this, that we would come alongside one another, pour into one another, and exalt you as we encourage and exhort one another in living a life before you that praises you in all things. Amen. It's often said that you're either in a trial, coming out of a trial, or going into one. And it's certainly been my experience. I know the experience of many others. And I recognize that really the f further you go in life, the more intense trials become. And because of this, we, we really do desire to grow in our belief and trust in the Lord so that knowing that we encounter harder and more difficult trials, we will, like Daniel and his friends, stand firm in the day of testing, having our heart set in belief, in knowing what God has said. And to help us this morning to grow in our belief and trust of the Lord, I, we're going to spend a little time, not in Matthew, where we've been for many, many weeks, but in Psalms. In fact, you can turn to Psalm 3. Psalm 3 was written by David. We often call him the psalmist. Peter calls him a prophet. Jesus, referring to his writings, calls him a prophet. We also know he was a king. But one of the things I, I love about the Psalms is that while much of Scripture speaks to us and at us, providing instructions, exhortations, examples, rebukes, commands, the Psalms often speak for us, verbalizing what we think and what we feel. Psalm 3 is an expression, at least it begins, is an expression of anxiety as David unabashedly describes his fears and his anxiety in the context of his son Absalom's uprising. If you spent much time in church, you probably are familiar with David. You remember his youth as a shepherd, his anointing by Samuel, while still a boy, still a very young man in his father's house. His exploits against lions and bears while tending the flocks. His famous battle with the giant Goliath. His many feats of valor with his mighty men. And the expansion of his kingdom during his 40 years as reign as king over Israel. You're also probably familiar with the less admirable times in David's life. His adultery with Bathsheba. Followed by the murder of Uriah. The subsequent death of his newborn child is a consequence for his sins. Psalm 3, however, takes us to what may be classified as one of the lowest points in David's life. He had a few of them. This may be one of the lowest points in his life. What is unique about this time is that it wasn't because of some gross personal transgression on his part. There are things he should have done differently, but... That wasn't the direct cause. Rather, this was a trial brought on by the sinful ambition of his own son. His own son who was seeking to murder his father David and steal the throne for himself. 
In 2 Samuel 15, we read about the extent of Absalom's plotting, his hatred for his father David. He, he used to show up at the city gate, and he would intercept people on their way in to appeal to the king, to ask them to adjudicate on their behalf, to judge between them and their neighbor. And he would say, hang on a second, don't bother. He doesn't care about you. Me, I, I care about you. Let me help you out. And so he would sit there by the gate, intercepting person after person, and slowly turning the hearts of Israel away from David toward himself. Absalom would slander his father, say that his father didn't care about the people, would not or could not provide justice. He claimed to be the only one that cared for them. And so the text reads in 2 Samuel 15, 13, that Absalom turned the hearts of Israel away from David. And having sown that distrust through lying and slander, Absalom then called to himself all of the Israelites who had followed him, and he marched on Jerusalem. And he marched with such numbers that David was forced to flee with just a few of his loyal followers and some of his mighty men. Psalm 3 is written during David's exile from Jerusalem when all Israel seemed to be against him. His own son is trying to kill him and he's living as an exile in the wilderness. So let's read. It's just eight verses and read together Psalm 3. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. Selah. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me roundabout. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. Selah. Here in these verses, we learn the Really the means and the method for how you praise God in adversity. And we're going to walk through this and see this. And, and watch what David does here as we work through these verses. We look at the first two verses, and what do you observe? What do you see? What is David experiencing? Well, we see that his foes are increasing. This aligns very much with the account from 2 Samuel 15. Many are attacking him, both physically and verbally. In fact, as he, as he left the city and was going out, he was being verbally assaulted by one person in particular, but by others as they mocked him on his way out. And so both physically being attacked and verbally being attacked and having stones thrown at him on his way out of the city. He describes this. Persons are saying there is no help for him from God. That word help is the word we sometimes translate as salvation. There's no salvation from God for him. Obviously his enemies are referring to temporal salvation in this earth. He's being attacked. Many are saying that God will not help him. If ever there was a time to cry out Hosanna, looking for God's saving hand, this was it. Now let me ask, and this is important. This is important for us to consider and to orient ourselves. Let me ask, does David have a reason for being discouraged at this point? I know you're scared to ask, answer, because the Sunday school answer, you're not allowed to admit you're afraid, Right? It's not okay to say that you struggle with emotions. Now, these are real problems. 
Humanly speaking, from the world's standpoint, he is overwhelmed. There are real problems. There is real adversity in David's life. This is not some hypothetical problem. In fact, if you were to make a list of how David feels right now at the end of verse 2, some of the things you could include would be despair, anxiety, depression, anger, bitterness. There are real feelings and real emotions that he was struggling with. I doubt there's anyone this morning who has not felt those at one time or another. And yet, while these are real emotions and they are real feelings that we experience in this life, they do not facilitate God-honoring responses. We know this, right? They certainly aren't those that bring you before God in praise. But they are real, and just wishing them away won't change things. So how do we move from these emotions that often result in sinful responses to instead a heart and a mouth that praises God? Because that's what David does. How does he do that? How does he go from what is one of the lowest points of his life, where he is dealing with despair, he's being attacked by his very son, in exile from the people that he has served and ministered to? How does he move from this low point to one where he can turn and praise God? Let's return to Psalm 3 and look at verses 3 and 4. The very first thing David does is he begins to reflect on who God is. This is very important. This is where it begins. You need to turn and reorient yourself, begin to remind yourself what you know to be true about God. Regardless of how you feel, remind yourself what you know to be true. How does David describe God? He describes him as a shield. He describes him as my glory. He describes him as the one who lifts my head. I notice that as David begins to reflect upon who God is, you begin to see a change in his tone and even the tenor of this psalm. And as you think about David's life, he was a warrior. And yet this warrior, this man who slew the giant Goliath, who led a band of mighty men who, if you've read their exploits and their feats, you'd realize they would put any modern-day special forces to shame. This man turns to God as his what? As his shield. He doesn't look to his own strength. In his lowest point in life, he doesn't look for his own strength. If anybody was able to look at their strength and what they had accomplished, it was David. And yet that's not where he turns. He turns to God as his shield. He doesn't look at his own power, his own might when facing adversity. He turns to the Lord. Not only that... In the midst of adversity, he still calls the Lord his shield in the midst of this. He's not blaming God. doesn't mean God wasn't sovereignly in control of bringing it into his life, but he wasn't blaming him, saying, Why me? God, you hate me. He still calls the Lord his shield in the midst of adversity, knowing that God is the one who protects him. Yes, he's the one who brought this to pass. But he knows that nothing will afflict him except what God allows. Similar to what John describes when he talks about the Father holding us in his hand. No one can take us from the Father's hand. That's what Paul says in Romans 8. 
When he says, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Next, David says, The Lord is his glory. Again, think about David and his life for a moment. Humanly speaking, did David have anything to glory in? Yes. Humanly speaking, he was king. He was a national hero who had defeated the Philistines. He had subdued other nations and peoples. He accomplished great feats. He restored the ark to Jerusalem. He received tribute, wealth, and honor from the nations. Yet when adversity, when difficulty, when time of discouragement comes, David doesn't rely on any of those things. Instead, he says, the Lord is my glory. This is the one in whom I boast. His boast is not in what he has done or what he thinks he can do. His boast is in the Lord. And if your confidence is in the Lord, if your self-worth is in the Lord, not in what others think about you, but in what the Lord thinks about you, then really think about this. If all that really matters is how the Lord views you, then what can the words of another person, what can the actions of another person really do to you? It's only when you care more about what others view you or how others view you, we often call that the fear of man, when that begins to creep in, that's when we begin to waver. We stop praising the Lord when we take our eyes off of Him, when we stop, when He stops being our glory, and we put it on ourselves and our situation. That's when we really begin to falter. It's when we struggle to praise the Lord, when we, like Peter, take our eyes off the Lord and immediately begin to slip beneath the waves of adversity. Because we focus on the circumstances and on ourselves. It's when we try to rely on our own strength. It's like quicksand. The more we struggle and fight, relying on our own strength and power to rescue ourselves, the deeper we sink. Instead, and this is one of the great seeming contradictions of Scripture, the more we rest in Christ and stop striving in our own power, the more we call out to the Lord and rely on Him, the more readily His strong arm is to save us the quicker our rescue comes. Now that doesn't always mean, and we'll talk about this in a moment, immediately alleviating the situation, but our entire perspective changes. And that's really what we want, is to be able to rest in the midst of a painful, hard, difficult world in situations that are hard and difficult. I want rest. And there's a way to have that. The final clause of verse 3 says, The one who lifts my head. When you see a person with their head hung low, are they joyful or discouraged? It's discouraged. And again, this is not abstract or hypothetical. David is describing what he went through. In fact, if you read 2 Samuel 15.30, David, as he was fleeing, he began to ascend the Mount of Olives. And as he was fleeing, it says his head was bowed down and covered as he was weeping. So now David reminds himself that it is not his circumstances that lift his head in joy. Because if we rely on our circumstances, our head's going to go up and down, up and down, up and down. Instead, it is the Lord who lifts up his head. It's the Lord who gives him cause for joy, cause for rejoicing. He felt sorry for himself. 
And, and don't get me wrong, this was a bad situation. But David is now reminding himself that regardless of the situation, God gives joy, as Spurgeon describes it, though I hang my head in sorrow, I shall very soon lift it up in joy and thanksgiving. And look at verse 4. What is David doing? He's crying out to the Lord, but there's another word for that. It's praying. Praying isn't always quietly. Sometimes it's desperate pleas of help. It wasn't until David acknowledged that his strength came from God, that his only reason for boasting was in God, that his joy was found in God, that his attitude changed. The anxiety and the discouragement from this adversity, you can see it on the pages. It's as if it begins to fade away from the pages. Verse 4 also reminds us of another great truth about God, and that's that He hears and answers prayer. He will draw near to those who call out to Him. In verse, verse 4, end it with just the first half. This crying out would be no different than the wailing of the surrounding pagan nations to their idols. However, unlike the gods of the surrounding nations, God hears and answers prayer. A little bit later in Israel's history, this is displayed in dramatic fashion on Mount Carmel. When Elijah the prophet went toe-to-toe with the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18, where God answered with fire from heaven. God hears prayer. He hears the prayers of His saints. After praying to the Lord and reminding himself of these attributes of the Lord, reminding himself who the Lord is, what happens? Notice what happens in verse 5. David slept. Now that may not seem that amazing at first. may not seem that impressive. But when your mind is filled with anxiety and worry, what is one of the hardest things to do? It's to sleep, to rest. Has the situation changed? Has Absalom suddenly stopped hunting David down? Is David no longer in exile? No. None of that has changed. Nothing about the situation has changed. So why is David able to peacefully rest and sleep? It's because he recognizes that the Lord is bigger than any of his circumstances. His perspective has completely changed. He's bigger than any adversity that comes his way. Not only that, the Lord has allowed it and protects him in the midst of it. David recognizes that the Lord brings adversity for our good and for his glory. I mean, simply put, it's not about us when difficulty comes. Our greatest joy, peace, and contentment in this life will come from recognizing that we were created not for our own comfort, but for God's glory. If the Son of God If Jesus Christ came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many, if he suffered and bled and died for the glory of the Father, then are we really so arrogant as to think that we were created just to enjoy a comfortable and easy life? That God would somehow be most glorified in us never struggling and never suffering? If the very Son of God suffered for us? David then says that he awoke because the Lord sustains him. Again, that may seem very natural. You go to sleep, you wake up. Have you ever thought about 
really thought about that simple truth? I mean, it happens every day, so we take it for granted, but when we go to sleep, we are completely out of control. Anything can happen to us when we sleep. In fact, even the ability to wake ourselves up requires some outside force. It is God who sustains even our waking each and every day. We are the most vulnerable when asleep. And yet God sustains him. David is able to peacefully sleep with no concern regarding the persons who in verse 1 are increasing and rising against him, making efforts to surround him. Notice David did not say that he knows what the outcome will be. He doesn't know. That didn't matter. He's still able to rest. But he's no longer afraid. He has completely turned the situation over to the Lord and his sovereign hand to work it according to his good pleasure. In verse 7, David prays to the Lord asking that he would save him. David's basis for asking for God's salvation is in light of what he has already done. David is asking for temporal salvation in light of God's eternal decrees. What are God's eternal decrees? That wicked, the wicked and wickedness will be punished. So what is David saying when he says, You have smitten my enemies on the cheek, you have shattered the teeth of the wicked. He is saying the Lord has completely defanged his enemies in light of eternity. In light of his eternal plan, the wicked will be judged. There's nothing they can do to harm us into eternity. This life is but a moment, but a blink of the eye. And in eternity, it is settled. In Psalm 58.6, David uses the same analogy again, saying he has defanged the young lions, referring to those who act wickedly. And who's going to be afraid of a toothless lion? It's just a big kitty cat. In light of God's eternal decrees and promises, the enemies in this life, the difficulties of this life, cannot truly harm him. They cannot touch his eternal security with God. Then in verse 8, David recognizes the temporal outcome in this life, specifically the outcome he has prayed for, that the Lord would deliver him from this situation. He recognizes that it's up to the Lord, regardless of and regardless of whether or not the Lord chooses to save him, David says the Lord is the one who saves. He is the one who is capable of saving him. This is very similar to what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said when standing before Nebuchadnezzar. When Nebuchadnezzar called upon them and gave them one last chance to bow before his golden image. They told him that God is able to save them from the power of his hand. But then what did they say? But even if he doesn't. We will not bow down and worship your golden image which you have erected. They recognize where the power to save lies, just as David recognizes where the power to save exists, and yet they also recognize that they don't know the plan of God. God's greatest glory may sometimes be in our suffering to endure. This life is temporal, and what people think of you, what people may do to you, what pains and sufferings you may experience, these are all passing away. Eternity is forever. This is what gave Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego their confidence. It's what gave David his confidence in Psalm 3. And David's closing words are, Your blessing be upon your people. What is his blessing? Well, in this context, it is that we would experience the nearness of God as our shield, our glory, our giver of joy that we would in turn praise the Lord even in times of trial. 
So what is the means for praising the Lord in adversity in the midst of trials? Of maintaining that praise that allows us to be able to say Hosanna at all times? First, don't focus on yourself and your situation. And be like Peter, when he first stepped out of the boat, he fixed his eyes on the Lord. He didn't look at the waves. He didn't look at the storm. He fixed his eyes on Jesus. That's what the author of Hebrews says when he says, Christ, the author and perfecter of our salvation. He describes him fixing our eyes on him. Secondly, remind yourself of the character of God, just as David did. He began working through who is God, what has he done, and describes it. If you need a place to do that, start making lists of who God is in, from the Psalms. Start cataloging in your own life how God demonstrates these things. How has he helped you in the past? How has he cared for you? How have you grown through past difficulties so that now looking back, you praise God that he took you through it? I would say that there's many of us who have been through difficulties where at the time we were praying that they would end as quickly as possible, that now looking back, we're thankful that they existed as long as they did. And then pray to the Lord. Pray with the knowledge that he hears and he answers, whether that be through bringing scripture to mind, through calming us, allowing us to find rest when trouble. The temporal answer may not always be what we pray for, the way we pray for it. In the garden, Jesus prayed that if possible, he would not have to undergo the cross and separation from God. But the answer was, he must. But he was given the strength to endure it. David demonstrates for us in Psalm 3 the change that takes place in our lives, not in our circumstances, but in our lives and in our thinking when we practice these things in the midst of adversity. And that's what enables us to be able to give him praise at all times. Job's question, shall we accept good and not bad? It requires careful introspection, careful thought. Because the answer is not simply yes or no. I wish it was. I wish I could say yes, always. I always accept the good and give the Lord praise for the good. That is the first thing that comes into my mind every single time. But you know I would be lying. Because we all struggle with responding the right way. And yet when we try to fight these trials in our life, we know what this feels like. When we try to fight it in our own strength, we forget to call it to the Lord. It's like that analogy I already used of quicksand. The harder we struggle, the deeper we seem to sink. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 7.14, saying, In the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. In other words, God is completely in control. And if I really believe that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, then that means the good days and what I would call the bad days. Most of those in the crowd who were crying out Hosanna as Jesus entered Jerusalem that day did not recognize that the very one they were celebrating was also the very one who offered them salvation from their sin. They were looking for temporal salvation. They were looking for a temporal kingdom. But the one that they were surrounding and praising that day was the one who could save them from eternity spent in the torment of hell with weeping and gnashing of teeth because of their sin that separates them from a holy God. If you're here this morning and have never called out to the Lord to save you, if you have never confessed your sins, if you have not repented and turned to the Lord, 
then you'll never be able to experience the rest and the peace that is promised until that day. Until you confess your sin, until you call out to the Lord to save you and stop trying to do it yourself. Stop trying to fix things yourself and call out to the Lord for his strong right arm of salvation. It's at that point that you'll know the peace that passes all understanding. And if that's you this morning, please find me afterward. Ask another man or woman here how you can know this promise of peace. We'd love to share it with you. We would delight to share it with you. As we celebrate and think about Jesus' entry into Jerusalem this Palm Sunday, I want us to remember who Christ is and what he has accomplished on the cross. So whether in health or in suffering, in abundance or in want, we will never cease to say, Hosanna and turn to the Lord in thankfulness and in praise. Again, both for what he has done, looking back, and looking forward to the promises of what he will do in eternity. We've been studying Matthew, and we know the promises, and they're continuing to be unfolded before us, that he will return to rule and reign, first on this earth and then in eternity to come. Let's begin praising this same God and King today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for days like today that remind us of the work of Christ on the cross, the events and days leading up to the crucifixion, but also to the burial and, most importantly, the resurrection, the victory over death. Father, we acknowledge that we are at times a capricious and fickle people, that we do not always respond as we should, that our first thoughts are not as they should be. Lord, help that to grow fainter and fainter and let the more consistent response in our attitude and our lips and our thoughts be one of praise and the good and the bad, recognizing that you create one and the other. Help us to encourage one another. Thank you for the body that you give, saints and believers ministering together. Father, we are not to do this alone. You have given us a support and encouragement and help for one another. Would we be busy about encouraging and exhorting, coming together so much more as we see the day approaching? Father, we thank you for this time this morning. We pray these things in your name. Amen.